So today on Oro Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about how much the church has changed in the last 200 years to conform to the gospel. My special guest will be Father Serge Probst. And this particular episode is interesting because we're going to discuss at some length a papal tiara, that is Napoleon's tiara, a tiara that Napoleon gave to Pope Pius VII in the early part of the 19th century and the fate of that tiara and how it exemplifies for us uh, the change in the church over the last 200 years. And so stay tuned. This is a very interesting episode of Oro Valley Catholic. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old, and uh, the church has uh, really survived so many difficult times that put our present struggles in a wonderful context. And that's what this podcast is about. You know, when the Roman Empire collapsed, essentially in the 6th century, the Pope was the one organizing uh, office that was still viable in the Western Church. The Byzantine Church, centered around Constantinople, was still functioning fine. But in the West, um, the uh, Roman Empire basically had been overrun by various barbarian tribes like the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Lamb, the Lombards, um, the Franks, and uh, basically fed off what was left of Roman systems. Well, the Pope stepped in and helped kind of keep Europe together in that, in that time period, helping to protect the learning of the Greeks and the Romans, uh, providing support and sending missionary activity out uh, to try to bring Europe to Christ. In fact, Gregory the Great, the 7th century, one of the most notable popes in that regard. But when the pope took over civil power, which really was not anything exercised by uh, any of the bishops of Rome in the first three or four centuries of Catholic history, when the pope moved into the temporal sphere and became a ruler, he became a ruler over the central part of Italy, but he also began to uh, increasingly claim that he had authority over all the kings of Europe and supreme spiritual authority over Europe. This led to the huge struggle between the papacy and various kings who were becoming more powerful, more prominent, who claimed divine authority for themselves. And essentially it blew up Europe in the, uh, the Reformation in the early part of the 16th century. You know, it's not a great mystery that in, in this long struggle between the Pope and the various kings and emperors of Europe, that the Pope had, had uh, excommunicated two different kings, more than that, but these two in particular, Frederick II of uh, the Holy Roman Empire, think Germany, especially northern Germany, and then Henry II, a Plantagenet king uh, in England, both essentially around the High Middle Ages, the 12th and 13th centuries. And remember in the Reformation, what are the two hotspots for the Reformation? Northern Europe and England. And why are they hotspots? Uh, because the princes there want to get away from uh, papal control. The Pope had worn a tiara, which was looks like a large rounded soup pot. Maybe you've seen a, a picture of a Pope wearing a tiara. But it is a papal crown, and it really has three crowns on it, the triregnum, 
three ruling powers of the Pope symbolized in that papal tiara. So one is that the Pope claims to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the Pope is his vicar of the vicar of Christ claims that same authority. The second is the Pope claims temporal authority over the papal states. This is a huge part of Italian history. The middle part of Italy surrounding Rome called the Romagna, uh, the Pope ruled as a king well into the 19th century. The third crown stands for the spiritual authority of the Pope, what we think of as uh, Jesus' um, uh, choice of Peter, uh, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell and the netherworld will not prevail against it. So today on Oro Valley Catholic, I want to talk about one tiara in particular. The French Revolution effectively blew up the spiritual power of the church. Uh, the French Revolution happened in 1789, and in a sense, it was kind of the inevitable uh, result of what had happened in the Reformation uh, and the popes like Boniface VIII, who was a famous foil of Dante in the 13th century. It's really just the predictable result of more and more powerful kings uh, wanting to have control over the church, appointment of bishops, uh, and, uh, and finding the pope simply an opponent and not useful to the national aspirations of uh, France and the French king. So in 1789, there's this huge revolution in France where they basically take control of the church, chop off the king and the queen's head, uh, and France just melts down. What solves France's political problems is a man named uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, who in the Revolutionary Army of France during the time of the Revolution is uh, a lieutenant in the artillery. So when Parisian mobs, who have so much to do with the French Revolution, are storming the city, Napoleon brings in artillery and fires down the boulevards of Paris, cutting people into pieces. This apparently calmed the Parisians down, but not before they had instituted the reign of terror and executed kings and nobles, bishops and priests. And one day, they claimed to have executed 1,500 priests who refused to recognize um, the revolutionary government as the head of the church in France. Uh, the revolutionaries had not come up with the idea that they were the head of the church in France. Uh, the king of France had claimed that. It was a theory called Gallicanism, which was very alive in the, 18th, uh, in the uh, 19th century. So anyway, what happens is Napoleon um, destroys these rebel crowds, and then ultimately he seizes complete control in France, and he begins to conquer most of Europe. England really, at the end, is his only great opponent, England and Russia. And so for 15 years or more, Napoleon tries to conquer Egypt. He tries to conquer Spain, Germany, Austria, Poland, um, the Balkan states, and then um, meets his end in Russia when he invades Russia, and the Russian winter destroys him. But during all of these... Uh, uh, marches and these campaigns by Napoleon, um, where he is so destructive, he at one point conquers the Pope and takes him captive, uh, Pius VI. 
Pius VI actually dies in captivity under Napoleon. And the Napoleon engineers uh, the election by the cardinals of Pius VII, whom Napoleon once again um, just keeps uh, under his control. At one point, when Napoleon wants to start his own dynasty, he decides that he's going to have to be crowned emperor of the French. Remember, the French Revolution cuts off the king's head. So Napoleon wants to bring back the monarchy, but he's going to be the new monarch. So he brings Pius VII uh, to France, where uh, he's going to be crowned. And what Napoleon does is he has a tiara created for the pope, and it's a gift he gives to the pope. The tiara has rare and valuable uh, uh, gemstones and precious jewels in it. All jewels, by the way, Napoleon had stolen from the Vatican when his army sacked Rome a few years earlier. So there is a famous painting, if you never see it, by uh, Jacques David, I think his name is, um, the uh, coronation of Napoleon uh, and Josephine, his wife, Josephine du Bourgneuve. And in the picture, there is the picture of Napoleon, who famously will not allow himself to be crowned by the Pope. And the Pope has been crowning French kings since like the 8th century. But Napoleon is the first claimant to the French throne who refuses to be crowned by the Pope. Napoleon famously takes the crown and crowns himself because he seized control, he seized power. Then he famously crowns his wife Josephine and then tries to build a dynasty. If you go and look at that picture by, uh, by David, the crowning of Napoleon Bonaparte, you'll see an image of Pius VII painted there because he was actually at that coronation. Didn't have anything to do with it, apparently, but he was actually at the coronation. And standing behind him is a man holding the papal tiara that Napoleon had given Pius VII. So why isn't Pius VII wearing that tiara? This is what makes this a great story. Napoleon had a French jeweler make the tiara, but he made it too small to fit on any human head. Papal tiaras normally weigh between four and six pounds, like the one I told you about, about Paul VI and the Immaculate, uh, the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, light enough to fit on a human head. Napoleon's tiara weighed 18 pounds, too small to fit, too heavy to wear. So, yeah, the Pope had his throne. He had, uh, I mean, his crown. He had at one level papal dignities, but he was being humiliated in public by Napoleon. You know, the next time that that tiara was worn was after Napoleon died, and it was worn by Pius IX, who had it uh, redone by a Roman jeweler so he could wear it. Why did he do that? Because the middle of the 19th century, the 19th century in general, what they call the long century, was very hard on the Catholic Church. And Pope Pius IX wanted basically to undo the damage that the French had done to the papacy by kidnapping Pius VI and Pius VII. So taking Napoleon's tiara and redoing it meant that when the Pope claimed that tribe, those three crowns, um, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler of the papal states, and also spiritual head of, of the world,
Uh, this was a statement that the Pope was making. How did it work out for him? Well, what it led to was the Second Vatican Council. Um, and so let's talk about the Second Vatican Council and ask Father Serge Probst, who actually converted to the Catholic faith and uh, became a Dominican priest during the time of that council. Um, and then we'll conclude the story of Napoleon's tiara, which is worth hearing. Father Serge, you know, you were brought up as a member of the Baptist Church. Your mom and dad were Baptist. Your whole family, I guess, was Baptist. Why did you decide to leave the Baptist Church? Well, before I answer that, what I would like to say is that I truly now value my Baptist experience. It was in the Baptist Church that I first encountered Jesus and came to love the Bible and to understand what it meant to serve my neighbor, to really love them. My difference with the Baptist Church was over doctrine. I was asked to teach a Sunday school class for uh, juniors. I was a senior at the time. My uncle was a Baptist minister. And I chose to, as it were, expose the, the depths of the first letter of St. John. And in that I became absolutely convinced that Jesus is love, that no one is damned except they deliberately choose to reject him and to defy him. But one Sunday, which was a Sunday in which they took up a collection called Lottie Moon, a Christmas offering for foreign missions, uh, the pastor came up to address the uh, group of assembled uh, students and he maintained that if we didn't raise enough money to send missionaries to China, all kinds of innocent children would be sent to hell because there was no one to preach the gospel to them. I was wise enough to keep my mouth shut, but my students weren't, and they kind of confronted him with the fact that that would be a cruel and unjust God since the children would have no choice in the matter. Uh, then when the pastor got upset about that, he accused me of breaking all, as it were, uh, norms of biblical study and uh, the faith of the Baptist Church, and I, in turn, got very, very angry, fought with him publicly. He tried to shame me. I ended up simply leaving the Baptist Church and wanting nothing to do with religion at all. If God was that cruel that he would send people to hell without any possibility of their redemption, then I wanted nothing to do with him. Yeah, and in that also is how clergy uh, pastors treat people, how important it is uh, for us to be uh, kind uh, to people so that the gospel can be heard. But you know, you went from being a Baptist to the Catholic Church. What stimulated your conversion to Catholicism? Well, I didn't go immediately to the Catholic Church. I spent about two years, I thought, as a good atheist, but in honesty, it probably was as an agnostic. I came to an understanding that science really was the truth because it alone could predict, as it were, the results of various uh, interactions and between reality and this world. But I had a girlfriend who encountered me and kind of challenged me. She said there was more to religion than what the Southern Baptists taught, and that if I was going to reject religion, at least I should know what I'm rejecting. So I deliberately took up a study of comparative religion. I wasn't being very honest about it because I was using it as a way to demean religion and show her that all of it was a bunch of bunk. And so I chose the most vulnerable religion I possibly could to expose, and that was Shintoism, which is a Japanese native religion. 
But when I read through Shinto and began my studies, I began to notice all kinds of truths, goods, beauty. In fact, I was a little impressed. Then I took up a study of Buddhism, even more impressed. I won't go through the whole story, but I ended up coming to understand that religion isn't a series of fables or myths. Religion really begins to, to search the depths of the human spirit of who we are and why we are and what we do. And finally, through my study, I came back to the Catholic Church through the uh, Church Fathers, and there I fell in love. What I came to, a con what conclusion I came to was that all the truths and beauty and goodness of every other religion I had studied could be found in the Catholic faith. If I chose any other religion, I'd have to reject something. With the Catholic faith, I could have it all and have it perfect. So being very greedy for what is good, right, just, and beautiful, I became Catholic. But you became Catholic. What year was that? 1963. 63. Well, you know, on October 11th, 1962, Pope John XXIII opened the Second Vatican Council in Rome. And that uh, has, was really in the middle of a tumultuous decade. And the council itself had created some controversy. How did you deal with the revolution that enveloped the Catholic Church during and after the Second Vatican Council? Well, first, I think what happened was I read all of the documents of Vatican II as they came out and very quickly learned that there was a big difference between what Vatican II was saying and a lot of theologians and priests and religious who were talking about the spirit of Vatican II. They weren't the same where I think a lot of people simply use spirit of, of Vatican II to do anything they wanted, which really kind of upset me. At the same time, I began struggling with a call to a vocation to be a priest. And for that reason, I also took the teaching of the church very seriously. I wanted you to show me where in the church teaching or its tradition this or that was allowed. If it wasn't, I didn't want anything to do with it. So I was using the church herself as kind of the standard of my growth. That helped me to avoid a lot of things that were going on at the time. But one of my blessings is that I entered the church before the decrees of Vatican II could be actually put into practice, into place. And so I remember the Pope, or the, the church before Vatican II. And that church had its own problems and its own corruption. I remember a priest bragging to me that he could celebrate mass in 15 minutes so that early in the morning people could get in, get out, and get to work. And I was imagining how you could pray the whole Mass in 15 minutes with any kind of devotion or any kind of uh, purity of heart. This seemed more like magic to me. And so there was a lot of things in, in the church at that time that I found very distasteful and very upsetting. Thank heavens for Vatican II. It helped, as it were, for me to understand that the church was constantly reforming itself and really seeking the truth. This is something real and actual. This is something I wanted to be part of. You know, one of the things that Vatican II um, uh, pronounced very loudly was the universal call to holiness. And you, during your priesthood, you've been blessed to know some pretty holy people, including uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And uh, ironically, today is her feast day. Yeah. And so... Uh, take a moment, if you would, and uh, talk about the universal call to holiness and the holy people that you've met in your life as a priest. Well, the universal call to holiness is addressed to each and every one of us and asserts that God loves us, each and every one. 
And he's doing it in a sense without distinction. We might be very different in ourselves, but all of us are called to be saints. There's no such thing as uh, a Christian that's unworthy of the fullness of sainthood or the fullness of uh, conversion if they willingly open their heart to receive God. I'm convinced that to do that, what we have to do is make a great act of faith. Probably the hardest thing to believe isn't that Jesus rose from the dead. It's that God actually loves miserable, rotten little me. That's the hardest thing. And it's hard because we don't love ourselves. The call to holiness then redounds to us being willing to believe somehow that God can and does love us even as we are right now. I believe that God himself is absolute love, infinite love, and that he offers us that love. But in offering us his love, he's given us a wonderful, as it were, part to play. He's given us the gift of free will. The gift of free will wasn't given to us so we could choose what kind of sandwich we want for lunch or whether we go to this movie or that movie. It was given to us primarily so that we could freely invite God into our lives, invite him to love us. That's why he won't enforce his love on us without our consent. So the first thing of the universal call to holiness is that every human being has that free will and is able to simply invite God to love them. If they let God love them, then they're loved and they're lovable. Remember, God's love is absolute. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more, and surprising to a lot of people, there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. When we commit mortal sin, we hurt ourselves. We don't change God's love for us. And since we have that free will, and God's not going to enforce his love on us, when I say to God that I want to be loved, that I give him permission to love me, he loves me. And in that love, I'm changed. I begin to cooperate with his love. I begin to live his love. I begin to become like his love. And that's holiness. So the universal call of holiness is addressed to every single human being in the entire world, even those in religions other than Christianity. Because we believe, as it were, in that baptism of desire that any human being, if they don't have a chance to hear the gospel, if they strive to do the best they can with what they have, God does not ignore them. And so I believe in a God of mercy and of love. Vatican II talked about that also, but I, one last question. When you knew Mother Teresa, did it ever kind of hit you that there was something special about her? Oh, absolutely. She was a woman that you fell in. First of all, she was a, a dumpy little lady. I mean, in terms of physical beauty, uh, she's not going to hit number one but she had a personality that immediately won your heart. One of the things I loved about her was how she would gravitate to the most abandoned, the most rejected, the most sick. If there was a group of sick people sitting around, she went to the one that had the most obvious sores, or the little kid who seemed to be the most abandoned. Uh, you could see her love just pour out. It was just uh, impressive. It moved everybody's heart. I'm always Remember that she would be constant. She said it to me constantly. Jesus, only Jesus, nothing but Jesus. Make that your motto over and over and over again. She's also probably one of the most stubborn women I've ever met. I've come to understand that true holiness is a type of stubbornness. It's a stubbornness for what is right, good, and just. A stubbornness for God, and nothing changes that. At one time, when I was teaching at the Angelicum in Rome, the priest who was supposed to give a retreat to the Missionary of Charity sisters who were going to take their final vows 
somehow could not show up for the retreat. And so they called me up while I was, as it were, lecturing at the Angelicum to take over his place. Well, I told them that was going to be very difficult since I had to now, as it were, juggle between my lectures at the Ange and getting down there to give their conferences and hear confessions. But uh, they persisted, so I gave in and did it. It was one of the most miserable weeks in my entire life. And I remember as Mother Teresa was coming in down below, the entrance to the, to the convent was on street level and then it was built on the side of a hill, so they had to come up kind of a driveway. And I was uh, standing on the porch in front of the church watching her come up saying, never again, I will never do this again. What I meant is I would never, as it were, try to lecture at the same time I was trying to give a retreat, impossible. I think one of the sisters though misunderstood me and thought I was saying I would never give them a retreat again. And so later that night I was called up to come back to Via Casalina because mother wanted to talk to me. Uh, I was imprisoned in, as it were, the uh, sacristy. She sat in the door so I couldn't get out. And they lec she lectured me for almost an hour on the importance of getting Missionary of Charities retreats. I couldn't get a word in edgewise. The last bus was about to come up. I knew if I missed that, I'm on the street all night long. So I finally just raised my hand and told her, I swear I will give retreats to the Missionaries of Charity until I die. As soon as she got that, she was satisfied. She stood up and let me out, and I rushed across the street to catch the bus. Just just in time. She was stubborn. When she thought something was necessary for God's glory or for the, for the well-being of the sick, the poor, nothing stopped her. So a good way to end this segment of Oral Valley Catholic is to say, Mother Teresa of St. Teresa of Calcutta, pray, pray for, for us. us. Thank you, Father Serge. But let's comment on the Second Vatican Council. What is so important about the Second Vatican Council? Uh, it's called universal holiness is the central theme of the Second Vatican Council. You can talk about aggiornamento, open to the world. You can talk about resourcement, going back to the fathers of the church, trying to reconnect um, a theology that had caught a little disconnected from the first several centuries of the church. But what I think the huge change is, is the orientation of the Holy Fathers. Now, more people know the names of the Pope and what the Pope does than they ever knew in the time of Pius VI, Seventh, and Ninth. And what the people think of when they think of the Pope is mercy. But this is the gift of the Second Vatican Council. And it's really the story of Napoleon's tiara. So here's the rest of the story. When we left Napoleon's tiara, uh, remember Pius VII sitting there watching Napoleon crown himself and crown Josephine. You know, his successor, when Napoleon dies out um, in, uh, at the, after he's defeated by the British, the Pope sends him a priest to hear his confession, give him last rites, and uh, give him viaticum. And so that, uh, oddly, Napoleon dies in his own words as a good Catholic, although he uh, wreaked horrible, horrible um, violence on the church and on the Pope in particular. But it was that sign of mercy, that show of mercy, that in some very important way was really who the Pope is. These three crowns. So Pius VII, one of his successors is Pius IX. He takes Napoleon's tiara and he has it reconfigured so it'll fit his head. Then when he's crowned the king of, the, of Romagna, the king of the papal states, he wears Napoleon's tiara. And so you know what he's saying, you know, 
So thanks. Nice try, Napoleon. But thanks for the tiara. We're still here in the Papal States. Then he has the First Vatican Council, um, where the run-up talks about monarchy and sovereign power and the infallibility of the Pope. All important things at the time. The one thing that has endured is the infallibility of the Pope, that in confused, morally relative times, someone, the Pope, speaks with authority. And that matters to people like Father Serge, to me, and to you. Well, Vatican I comes to an end because the Italians invade Rome to seize it for the Italian state. They want Pius IX to send give over power over the Romagna to the Italians. He refuses. It's not even really settled until Mussolini in the 20s, when Mussolini and the Pope at the time, Pius XI, I think it is, or Pius Pius XI or the 10th, I get them mixed up. But he resolves it, and um, that's how you get to the Vatican City state of today, which is about 23 acres of sovereign, um, sovereign power ruled by the Pope. But Benedict XV, before this, during the time of the First World War, he had pulled Napoleon's tiara off the shelf. He had all the jewels uh, pried off it, and he sold them. Then he used the money to take care of all the refugees out that he could out of the First World War. You know, the last pope, and I think I mentioned this, to wear a papal tiara was Paul VI, and his successors have not put on the papal tiara again. Why? Because the papacy's moved on. Um, the eye understanding that the Pope is on the side of the poor. This is what motivated Paul VI, uh, John Twenty-Third, Paul VI, uh, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and clearly Pope Francis. Uh, the church has always been concerned about the poor and about mercy because it goes back to our master, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. However, it's really about a matter of emphasis at the very top where leadership happens. And when the Pope, in some times gone by, was more concerned about fighting for this tenuous claim to earthly power, we ought to remember the examples of this when the church is worried about its political power in our country or anywhere else. Who do we really serve? What's the best way we do serve? I would suggest, friends, it's always the example of mercy. Well, thank you for being part of the Oral Valley Catholics podcast. Give me a like, and God bless you until next time.